Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, June 9th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. President Joe Biden embarking on an eight-day trip to Europe, pressing concerns to discuss with UK and European leaders, a summit with Russian President Putin set to cap off a trip many see as an effort to rebuild ties overseas. Back home in Washington, bipartisan talks over a nearly $2 trillion White House proposal to tackle the nation's crumbling infrastructure falling apart. And inching toward a vaccine goal, even as serious hospitalizations are on the rise for teenagers infected with the coronavirus. A look at where the nation stands in its battle with the pandemic. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. President Joe Biden is embarking today on the first overseas trip of his term. Among his top priorities during this eight-day trip will be reasserting the United States on the world stage and reassuring European allies. For more on the agenda and what's at stake for the U.S. president, let's go to Edwin Pitti. He's in Washington, D.C. with the latest details. Edwin. Andrea Biden has officially started his first international trip as president, and this morning he departed the White House to start his extensive agenda in England. And before boarding Air Force One, the president spoke briefly to reporters about all of the goals for this trip. Take a listen. Strengthening the alliance, make it clear to Putin and to uh, China that Europe and the United States are tight and the G7 is going to move. According to a senior White House official, Biden is hoping the goodwill he brings on his first trip abroad can ease European leaders about their doubts of U.S. reliability. Among his top priorities will be countering aggressions from both Russia and China. But let's take a look, Andrea, to the Biden agenda. Today, the president will deliver an address to U.S. troops stationed in the U.K. Tomorrow, Biden will meet Prime Minister Boris Johnson. On the 11th, Biden will attend the G7 summit where, with the UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. There, the president said he'll announce a new global coronavirus vaccine sharing strategy. On the 14th, the president is joining the NATO summit, and on the 16th, the awaited meeting with Vladimir Putin. Biden is also scheduled to meet with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan while in Brussels, a face-to-face -face meeting between the two leaders who have had many fraud moments in the relationship over the years. Of course, we're going to be following up all the details throughout the following days. Live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for following uh, this trip for the president. Meanwhile, for the White House, a critical month ahead for President Joe Biden's agenda, one of the many issues at hand, infrastructure. Talks breaking once again, but new bipartisan negotiations are already underway. The Biden administration will need to sway at least some Republicans or risk the bill stalling out. Democrats and Republicans remain at odds. Infrastructure talks between President Biden and a Senate GOP group led by negotiator Senator Shelley Moore Capito broke down again. They moved the goalposts on me a couple times and, um, you know, they just decided to walk away. The White House rejecting the latest GOP counteroffer on Friday. We had a COVID bill passed that wasn't really about COVID, and now we've seen an infrastructure bill tossed about that really hasn't been about infrastructure. 
The Republicans increased their proposal by $50 billion, but won a bill costing nearly $980 billion. Roughly $300 billion of that would be new infrastructure spending. The president has proposed $1 trillion, but all of that in new spending. The latest offer that we had seen from uh, Senator Capito's uh, group uh, did not meet the essential needs of our country to restore roads and bridges, prepare us for a clean energy future, and create jobs. The main sticking point is how to pay for it. The Republicans want to avoid raising any taxes or much new spending, paying for most of their proposal using funds already approved by Congress. Meanwhile, Biden has proposed funding it by having companies pay a minimum 15% tax rate and through increased IRS enforcement. The White House says Biden will now move forward on discussions with a bipartisan Senate group. The president has come down by about a trillion dollars. That's quite a bit. Um, obviously, we'd like to see more, uh, but there are a number of opportunities and paths to have these discussions moving forward. Overnight, that bipartisan group unveiled a new proposal, which includes $761 billion of new spending over eight years. That's more than Republicans proposed, but it's far less than the $1.7 trillion proposed by the president. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that as negotiations seem to be moving into a brick wall, Democrats are also pursuing another path, the pursuit of reconciliation. He's referring to the process of passing legislation with a simple majority in the Senate, which Democrats used to advance the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief law. Meanwhile, the impasse in Washington when it comes to the president's ambitious proposal leaves the nation's road, bridges and other infrastructure in perilous shape. And as Rafael Rodriguez explains, without an agreed upon plan, things could get worse before they get better. It's a traffic nightmare near Memphis. This is the new morning rush now faced by thousands who would take Interstate 40 each day. But with that bridge over the Mississippi River shut down by a critical failure, consumers are cramming onto nearby I-55 instead. Pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> we got to keep, keep waiting, going through the traffic. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Nurse practitioner Jason Gill fears that ambulances could one day get caught on their way home to Memphis area hospitals. When inspectors found this crack in one of the bridge's 900-foot steel beams last month, they called 911. We just found a, a super critical finding that, that needs traffic shut down in both directions on the I-40 Mississippi River Bridge. We need to, to get people off the bridge as soon as possible. And this cannot happen in the future. Absolutely cannot happen in the future. The 47-year-old Hernando de Soto Bridge is just one example of what the Biden administration says could be fixed and improved by its infrastructure plan. America's bridges earning a C grade from the American Society of Civil Engineers, that organization rating 46,000 bridges across the country as structurally deficient and in poor condition. This bridge between Indiana and Illinois is rotting away, closed since 2012. Here you can see some deterioration. Civil engineer Andy Herman showing off a railroad bridge near Boston, he says is no longer safe. Herman insists this traditional infrastructure is overdue for an overhaul, but it's caught in the middle of politics. It shouldn't be a political battle. It should be something we just invest in to make our lives better. 
Now they're under a lot of pressure here. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg toured the I-40 bridge. The Biden administration's $1.7 trillion infrastructure plan is larger than the plan proposed by congressional Republicans. Advocates hope whichever plan is passed pays for the $125 billion backlog of repairs they say that bridges need. I think this is just a, a reminder of how much we depend on these assets and uh, a reminder that it costs money <laughs> to, to look after these things. But, uh, you know, if, if you ever find yourself wondering, can we afford a big in investment in the future of infrastructure, uh, just remember what happens if one of those critical assets is not available. Back in traffic, it's not just drivers, but also tractor trailers that are dealing with delays. I-40 connects Tennessee and Arkansas, running all the way from North Carolina to California. In the middle is Memphis, known as the logistics hub of America. It's home to FedEx and the world's largest cargo airport, joining east and west by air, water, road, and rail. From a transportation logistics perspective, this country doesn't work without Memphis, Tennessee. Trucker Clifton Huey says his usual half-hour haul to a Union Pacific rail yard can now take up to three hours each way. He envisions a future with a third Memphis bridge, but says the only thing to blame for this gridlock is political gridlock. That's what's wrong with the world. Everything's political. You know, I don't care where you get it. Let's get it done. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. And on Capitol Hill, House Democrats are set to meet on Thursday to discuss how to move forward with voting rights legislation. The For the People Act is stalled in the Senate after passing the House with Republicans and at least one Democrat opposing it. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says her chamber will take up another option, the Voting Rights Act, in the fall. Democrats are concerned about how the GOP is changing elections at the state level. Republicans say they want to restore voter confidence after former President Trump's baseless claims of fraud. And another political news, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe captured the Democratic nomination for his old job on Tuesday. McAuliffe seeks to become the first person in decades to serve multiple terms as the top executive of a commonwealth that bars governors from serving consecutive terms. McAuliffe's win sets a general election between the former governor and Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin. The race in Virginia will be closely watched in Washington, D.C. and beyond. And in late-breaking news, the White House has dropped Trump-era executive orders that attempted to ban the popular apps TikTok and WeChat and will conduct its own review aimed at identifying national security risks with software applications tied to China. A new executive order directs the Commerce Department to undertake what officials describe as an evidence-based analysis of transactions involving apps that are manufactured or supplied or even controlled by China. Officials are particularly concerned about apps that collect users' personal data or have connections to Chinese military or intelligence activities. Now to the latest on the coronavirus pandemic, the president pleading with young Americans to get vaccinated. This as a new variant is now spreading among those 12 to 20 years of age in the UK. Dr. Fauci warning the U.S. is not out of the woods just yet. Lorraine Gassides has more. 
It's a race against the clock for the Biden administration. Three and a half weeks to go before the 4th of July deadline and vaccination numbers in the U.S. growing very slowly. CDC data showing that this past Monday, only about 30,000 people got their first dose, a stark contrast compared to the previous two weeks. The pace of vaccinations falling behind mostly among teens. This as concerns grow over a new variant that seems to be infecting younger people more than other strains. It's being called the Delta variant, first detected in India, and it's now dominant in the UK, spreading the fastest among those 12 to 20 years of age. The president on Tuesday tweeting, pleading with Americans to get vaccinated. If you're young and haven't gotten your shot, it really is time. Dr. Anthony Fauci saying the vaccines currently available should offer protection against the new Delta variant, although no specific studies have been done yet. That there are two ways to approach boosting. One is boosting against the original wild type for which a person was originally vaccinated. And the other is a variant specific boost. We are approaching both of those. But the one thing that we are noticing that's important is that the higher your degree of immune response against the wild type, the greater the secondary coverage you have against a wide array of variants. The CDC releasing a new report today on children who get sick with COVID. Children tend to make better immune responses than adults, so we're hoping that that will be the same case for the 5 to 11-year-old. Meanwhile, millions of Johnson & Johnson vaccine doses are set to expire. The pharmaceutical company now working to extend the life of their vaccine, which right now can be stored for up to three months. And for parents that are interested in vaccinating their young children, Pfizer has very good news. They've announced that they have started their phase two and phase three trials of the COVID-19 vaccine on kids 5 to 11 years old. These trial participants are receiving a smaller dose than adults and when they're ready to start um, vaccination trials on kids that are six months to five years old, which have not started yet, those trial participants are going to give it, be given an even smaller dose. This puts the whole vaccination plan in place and in order so that children can hopefully get vaccinated by the beginning of 2022. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And a former Wisconsin pharmacist will spend three years in federal prison for attempting to destroy nearly 500 vials of COVID-19 vaccines. Stephen Brandenburg pleaded guilty in two felony counts of attempting to tamper with a consumer product. Brandenburg attempted to intentionally remove Moderna doses from a refrigerator for hours at Aurora Medical Center, located just north of Milwaukee. Vaccines need to be refrigerated to stay viable. According to prosecutors, Bradenburg believed the vaccine was harmful and could change a person's DNA. His pharmacy license has been revoked and he can never work as a pharmacist in the state again. And make sure you've got plenty of chicken soup and some tissue boxes handy for the upcoming flu season. Some health experts say the bug could be especially vicious this fall. 
for one reason. Officials say after the COVID-19 lockdown, many may overdo being around large groups of people as travel increases, restaurants fill back up, and schools plan to reopen with in-person classes. The 2020-2021 flu season was noticeably light, largely because of mask wearing and a lack of human interaction due to the coronavirus. Roughly 8% of Americans get sick from the flu every year, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Vice President Kamala Harris on Tuesday defended herself from Republican critics who criticized her for making her first international trip to Mexico and Guatemala instead of visiting the U.S. border with Mexico, saying she has visited the border and will do so again. President Joe Biden has asked her to work on reducing the number of migrants arriving at the southern border. She has said her main focus is on root causes as well as acute causes of migration. Meanwhile, U.S. border authorities have been deployed to assist Mexican immigration officials in Cancun. They're looking for migrants posing as travelers with the intention of entering the U.S. illegally at the southern border. And that's according to two Department of Homeland Security officials. In May, authorities encountered around 180,000 migrants on the southwest border. According to one of the officials, the U.S. is on track to surpass 2019 crisis numbers with four months still left in the fiscal year. And along the border itself, a five-year-old migrant girl from Guatemala was found wandering alone in California. Monday, U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents spotted the girl being dropped off near the end of the border wall in San Isidro near San Diego. Agents said the girl walked along the border and into the U.S. after picking her up. Medical staff screened her and determined she was in good health. The girl told authorities that her parents were already in the U.S., but did not have any contact information. Border Patrol officials say they notified the Mexican and Guatemalan consulates, as well as U.S. Health and Human Services. Across the dividing line in Mexico, coyotes have been taking vulnerable migrant families out of shelters and crossing them into the United States to apply for asylum for more than two months. Here's Ana de Mendoza with that story. Dozens of migrants continue to arrive in Chiapas, Mexico. They say they will be traveling north this week. That's why you come to these countries, because if you had money, you would stay home sleeping. In Nuevo Laredo, shelters that were almost empty begin to receive new families. The same is happening in Ciudad Juarez. This shelter has only 27 people today, all of them new because most of the families who were here have crossed into the United States to seek asylum with the help of migrant assistant organizations. The shelter's director believes that this is encouraging other people to emigrate, even though the border is still closed and the Biden administration keeps deporting migrants. There is hope, because if some crossed and crossed fine, why can't they come to the border and do the same? In this other Juarez shelter, there are about 250 migrants. Yeni arrived this week. I can't live in my country because they will kill me. I come back to Guatemala and they will kill me. I'm fleeing from there. Activists insist that nothing will stop people from migrating. First, we have to focus on what is happening in those countries that are expelling so many people, so many families, for economic situations, for situations of violence. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Guatemala and Mexico for these purposes. Do not come 
do not come. And insisted that migrants shouldn't come to the United States. I just tell her to put herself in her shoes for a moment because she doesn't know the suffering we have gone through. I hope that she understands that people have suffered a lot. That is why they look for places where they can find some progress. Reported by Maria Eugenio Payan in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Ana de Mendoza, U News. In Central America, the large-scale poverty endured by millions of people could be one of the reasons for a sustained exodus to the United States. In Guatemala, one family is ready to migrate. And in order to do so and to pay the coyotes they believe are the key to their journey, they have had to pawn their house and the land on where they live. Andrew Peña has their story. With dreams of escaping severe poverty, Beatrice Cheek, a 35-year-old mother of three, is ready to leave Guatemala and migrate to the United States, as many families have done in recent months. We are seeing in the news families are getting through, although there are risks. Beatrice works as a seamstress and her husband works in construction, but together they don't even make $100 a week. They live in San Juan Zacatepeques, Guatemala. In this little house, the poverty, she says, is unbearable. We need it because here we can't do it anymore. Beatrice says her goal is for her whole family to leave, and for that, they have already made an agreement to sell their house and their land where they live. They are waiting for the money to be delivered and for a coyote to say when. We just set the date that the coyote says, and then we go and deliver the deed. Marcos, as we call this human smuggler, or coyote, will take Beatrice and her family to the U.S. border. How did you hook them? They call me and I come to their houses and we make an agreement so we can leave. Like Marco says, many are pawning their assets to move to the north. If the land is worth 150,000, we give them 100,000. And if it's worth 100,000, we give them 60,000 with 5% interest. Beatrice and her family say they are aware of the dangers and the possibilities of being deported and returning to live on the street, but still they want to try. We know the risk, but as he says to me, let's trust in God. Reported by Pedro Utreras in San Juan Zacatepeques, Guatemala. Andrew Pena, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. U News covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. June is Pride Month when the world's LGBTQ communities come together and celebrate the freedom to be themselves. And with us today is the author of a new book titled Hola Papi, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons. The book, written by John Paul Bramer, is based off of his popular advice column of the same name and his experience growing up biracial and in the closet in Oklahoma. John Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to U News. Andrea, thank you for having me. So talk to us about your book. Where did the title of the book come from? 
Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, why can't Dear Abby be a gay Mexican man? It really started as an advice column that was for an outlet called Into, moved to Out Magazine, Condé Nast. Um, now I run it myself and it's syndicated on the cut. And it really recounts a lot of my personal experiences growing up as a Chicano, growing up as a gay man. And I really just wanted to create a community for people out there who maybe need some advice on how to navigate their identity. How was the experience of writing this book as opposed to writing an advice column? Well, this book is a whole lot more personal. It's sort of a behind-the-scenes look at what running this advice column looked like because I received so many letters from around the world that are really just heart-wrenching for me and from countries where there are cultures that I simply don't know how to navigate on a daily basis, places where homosexuality is criminalized, places where it can be very dangerous to come out to your friends and family. And so this book is very much about that growing up process I had to do in a very quick way if I wanted to be any sort of mentor figure for other LGBTQ people out there, especially uh, other Latinos. I would like to discuss your background a little bit. What was your experience growing up biracial and gay in Oklahoma? Yeah, so my family originally comes from Chihuahua, Mexico. They moved up to Texas, and slowly but surely, we ended up in rural Oklahoma, where not only were we some of the only Mexicans around, we were some of the only people around. My neighbors were very much cows. And it was a really interesting environment because I was very estranged from my white family. We sort of immediately thought that it wasn't so cool that my dad decided to marry this brown Catholic woman. And I grew up very much in the shadow of my abuelos, who had a very immigrant story to them, grew up very poor, did manual labor, um, and then eventually when I came around, I had a lot of the comforts that um, we associate with that good immigrant narrative, air conditioning, a two-story house, and it really is a story about me trying to reclaim some of the things that my family lost, but then along the way, realizing that loss itself is oftentimes the most important part of a heritage or an identity. Now, you described the Hola Papi column as a queer Latino Dear Abby. What was it about your advice column that resonated with so many people out there? You know, Andrea, I think that a lot of LGBTQ people are very used to looking to the Internet for resources and for shoulders to lean on because so many of us haven't felt comfortable coming out directly in our communities and to our families. And so the Internet was already this place where we were always looking for knowledge about ourselves, for people that we could talk to, for community. And to be able to supply that in the way that I have is really such an honor. I very quickly realized just how many people out there just needed some friend at the bar to talk to about their problems or someone who's been through the ringer to tell them some advice about how to approach the problems of daily LGBTQ life. And Ola Papi is very much a celebration of that legacy. So you have the advice column, you have the book. What are your next plans? What are my next plans? Um, I'm a visual artist as well. I'm working on my print shop. I am working on my next book. And of course, I hope to continue to run Ola Poppy as long as I possibly can. It's brought so much joy into my life and the people I've managed to meet and the little slices of life that people send me through letters. Um, it's a very sacred thing, and I just feel so honored that I get to do it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. John Paul Bramer, author of Ola Papi, and we wish you the very best. Take care. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.